Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Race Bouillon, the founder of A World Without Hate, a nonprofit that is dedicated to breaking the cycle of hate and violence through empathy, storytelling, and education. As you may be aware, after 9-11, there was a significant increase in the number of hate crimes and Islamophobic attacks in America. Muslims, or even those that were perceived to be Muslims, were targeted by those seeking revenge for the 9-11 attacks. Rice was one of those victims, and his story of forgiveness and his vision for living in a world without hate is inspiring. I asked Rice about the day that he was attacked. It was 10 days after 9-11 terrorist attacks as rescuers continued to search ground zero for signs of life. Our country in deep mourning, a newfound fear and uncertainty looming, I began what would be my last day of work as a store clerk in Southeast Dallas. Around noon, a man wearing a bandana and sunglasses, carrying a double-barrel shotgun, walked in. Having been robbed before, I immediately opened the cash register and offered him money. Instead of taking it, his gaze remained fixed, and he asked, Where are you from? Before I could say anything more than excuse me, he pulled the trigger from point-blank range. I felt it first, like a million bees were stinging my face, and then I heard it, the explosion. I looked down to the floor and saw blood was pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. Frantically and instinctively, I placed both hands on my face, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. And I remember screaming mom on top of my voice, and then noticed the gunman is still standing there. And I thought if I did not appear to be dying, he would shoot me again. I fell to the floor on my own pool of blood, and he finally left. Wow. It's just... Uh, you've probably shared that story thousands of times before. Does it seem surreal to you after 20 years? Well, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm telling someone else's story. Even though I I moved on so much and uh, sharing my story again and again in many places all over the world, sometimes I, I just feel that it did not happen to me. I'm just telling someone else's story. 
at the storyteller. What what happened? So I imagine you were rushed to the hospital. You underwent a lot of surgeries. Can you can you tell us about what happened after you got shot? Sure.、Um, once I found myself on my own pool of blood, I felt I was dying, and I grabbed the phone. Couldn't dial nine one one. I was shaking so vigorously. I ran to the barber shop next door, and three men inside looked at me in horror, assuming the gunman was right behind me. They tried to escape through the emergency door. I grabbed one of them, screaming and begging him to call nine one one. And as he did, I caught myself in the mirror. Couldn't believe that was my face. Something like straight out of a horror movie. I came outside in the parking lot looking for ambulance, and I was very lucky. Ambulance arrived within a few minutes. On my way to the hospital, I started feeling losing consciousness. And images of my my parents, my siblings, and my fiance appeared before my eyes, and then a graveyard. And I felt my time was up, and because of which, I was seeing their faces for the last time, and then I'll be gone from this world. It was a terrifying moment. I was crying. I was begging God that Allah give me a second chance. I don't want to die today, and I promise, if you let me live, I would do good things with my life. Five hours after I was taken to the hospital, I lost my consciousness and was put on life support. The next thing I remember asking, "Where am I?" Because I thought I died, and I could not open my eyes. My jaw was almost stuck, so I could slowly say, "Where am I?" and anxiously waited for an answer. And within few seconds, I heard, "Good morning, Mr. Bhuyan. You're in the hospital." My eyes are full of tears, not from the pain, but from the joy of still being alive. And it was one of the most beautiful moments of my entire life. Waking up next morning, knowing I did not die, and because of because of that that feeling, that understanding, I appreciate life so much. It doesn't matter where you are in a hospital, in a prison, on the street. You are still alive. That is the most beautiful things in this world, that we are alive. But the joy didn't last long. Within few hours, the hospital, which was private and expensive, discharged me because I had no health insurance at that time,、wow. and asked me to arrange follow-up medical treatments on my own. After I was shot from point blank range with a double-barrel shotgun, I. Compared this incident as the first step of my American dream turning into American nightmare, and being kicked out from the hospital next day was the second part of my same American nightmare. And、um, as a result of this shooting, I lost my home, my sense of security, my job, and my fiance, but gained more than sixty thousand dollars in medical bills.、Uh, I. Was going through、uh, surgeries after surgeries, and、um, finally the doctor told me that he could not, he would not be able to save the vision in in one eye. So I lost vision in one eye. I had twenty ten vision.、Uh, I come from a Air Force background, so I had a very powerful eyesight. And knowing that, I would never see this beautiful world through my right eye. It was devastating. It prompted a huge trauma right there that I will never see through my right eye. 
but I had to make peace with my pain. And my father, when he heard what had happened to me, he suffered a stroke, but thankfully survived. I reached out to the Red Cross for help, but after several months of back and forth communication, uh, they told me I was qualified only for one week's worth of groceries. So it's it's just so very sad, and, and I have I do have to say that I'm I'm so grateful that you survived and and that you are sharing your story and and you've built such a remarkable life. I, I want to talk about everything that you've done in the last twenty years. I want to just go back to that um, that into the night the that you were attacked or the day that you were attacked. Um, as you were describing it, you mentioned that you you called out for your mom, and I got images of George Floyd and him calling out for his mom. Um, I, I wonder if you could j- just share, you know, just why why you did that. Well, because you know, um, we have a unique relationship with our mother, even though the cord was disconnected at the time of our birth. But that, in a strong bond between a mother and a child, is never removed. Is never uh, it, it 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 always exists in a very special and a powerful way. You know, that's what I felt that, you know, after I was shot in the face from point blank range, the first thing came into my head was, I miss my mother. And that's a place of comfort, not just mother is a, a figure, a person. It's also a place of warmth. It's a place of comfort, peace, where you can go and unconditionally get love and affection. This bond is never disconnected after the after we were born and uh, so i feel there's a tremendous you know power that when i heard the same thing from george floyd and also ahmed arbery the the young man was murdered in georgia i believe uh right yeah i can remember correctly so i wondered that did ahmed arbery also you know uh, screamed begging for you know uh connecting with his mother uh, which I never, we, I, we would never know. But in George Floyd's case, it, it gave me a goosebump. I, I couldn't stop, you know, uh, tears in my eyes when, when I saw the footage of George Floyd. Um, I just wondered how that police officer failed to act in a human way after even hearing that this human being under his knee was crying for his mother. I mean, he also had mother he had wife he had you know family members loved ones how he could fail to act in a human way there are a lot of things going on in my in my head after i saw that footage and learning hearing george was crying for his mother i it gave me a flashback and i it took me to uh, my shooting incident when i was on the floor on my own pool of blood crying begging god and imagining that even if I die today, I'm gone. But the people I would leave behind, like the very close ones, like my mother, my parents, my siblings, would they be able to accept this? Would they be able to move on? Would they be able to cope up with their trauma, with their pain and suffering after losing a loved one? So, so powerful. Um, I want to transition a little bit to your attacker, 
Mark Anthony Stroman, who was a white supremacist, and you were actually one of three of victims of his, or what two that he killed, and then you that he attempted to kill, um, as a result of you know misplaced rage and anger post nine eleven. Um, can you talk a little bit about him, and and maybe how you felt towards him uh, after the incident happened? Well, you know, I when I went to that part of the country, a very small town where you can see the sign of poverty everywhere. You know, um, people are struggling to make their ends meet. And when they came to the store, I really enjoyed talking, you know, uh, with uh, talking to them and learning about their life and vice versa. They were very curious to know more about me, where I came from, what brought me to a small town like Mesquite in Texas. I always enjoyed having that kind of conversation. And uh, I felt welcomed by the people uh, who came to the store as a customer. But then when my, the day my attacker came, before pulling the trigger, asked me, where are you from? I truly thought he wanted to know where I was from, even though he was pointing a shotgun at my face. But I was still thinking, maybe knowing the, the answer of his question, he might not harm me. He would just take the money and just leave. That was my, my hope and expectation at that time. But unfortunately, he did not allow me to answer the question and he shot. And I was still in shock, um, thinking why he shot me. I didn't do anything wrong to him. I did not harm anyone. I was just doing my own thing. I was a newcomer and immigrant to this great country. I was just trying to climb up and he shot me for why? I mean, why he shot me? I couldn't fathom, you know, why he did that. And so I was wondering who was that person, why he did that. And when he was arrested, he voluntarily told the news media that what he had done, most Americans wanted to do. They just didn't have the guts. Wow. And he claimed he was a true American. He was a patriot. He should be given medal for his action. And he, he said that he was hunting Arabs. But the truth is that not one of his three victims was Middle Eastern. It's so sad. He he ended up being uh, charged and, and convicted of this crime and then sen- sentenced to the death penalty. Can you talk about kind of how your opinion of him shifted as he was going through that process and, and kind of how you and him built a relationship post this attack? Yes. My attacker, Mark Stroman, was, uh, was tried and convicted and sentenced to death by lethal injection in 2002. And my part during his trial was uh, to be a witness during his punishment phase. And my role was to identify him in the court and just explain what happened to me and uh, telling the court that he was the person who did this heinous crime to me. That was my role during his uh, punishment phase. Once this trial was over, I was told to move on with my life and he got his punishment. Now he will be spending rest of his life uh, in Texas death row before he gets executed. But um, I did not feel that it truly ended there. I felt that, yes, he was convicted and uh, he would not be able to hurt any more people in the world. That chapter is over. But is that all? That he killed two and he almost killed myself. And now he'll be killed at some point. Even though, you know, I 
did not think much about the criminal justice system, about the American justice system. I, I was terrified even to go to the court and testify because I thought, you know, if I go and show my face, some of his associates might look for me and hunt me down and finish the job that he did not, he could not do that. But once the verdict was announced, I felt a little relief, but in the end, I did not feel that that everything ended right there. So I, I began to focus rebuilding on my life, which was almost destroyed in my dream country. And uh, I felt very sad uh, for my attacker because he failed to realize during the time of trial and even after that, that what he did and how he destroyed some human being's life, some innocent human being in human life uh, who did nothing wrong to him, to anyone in this country, and also how he destroyed his life and his children's life uh, because he did not show any sorts of remorse during the trial. Rather, he flipped his middle finger to the victim's families during the trial. And he kept calling himself as an Arab slayer in the first few years after he was thrown into death row. So I, I prayed for him that, you know, even though I was not thinking anything about him at the time, but I prayed that at some point he, he should come to an understanding that he did some heinous crime. He destroyed human lives, including him, his own. And he should be, you know, remorseful, at least to send a positive signal to the people in the free world who are like him, that he was wrong. He did horrible mistakes. People should not follow his footsteps. That was my hope and expectation at some point from him. But at some point, after several, after a few years, he, when he failed to reduce his sentence through appeal again and again, then he began to, he, then he began coming to realization that uh, actually he did heinous crimes. He did not, he was not a patriot. The, his action was not patriotic. He, he did some horrible crime and uh, he needs to take responsibility for that. Then he started uh, not referring him as Arab Slayer. And uh, he also started meeting new people through pen poll service around the world. So the people who was in his life, they were gone. And a new group of people came into his life who helped him change his views, thoughts, and ideas. And he started reading about uh, World War II, about Holocaust. And um, he had a swastika tattoo on his neck, but he did not know that his grandmother was Jewish. Up after the break, Rice does everything that he can to save the life of his attacker. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. Despite being a victim of a horrendous hate crime that caused tremendous pain and hardship, Rice Buyan eventually forgave his attacker, but Rice did more than just that. He set about trying to save him from the death penalty. I partnered with Amnesty International, and uh, I met many people from all walks of life, from Christ- you know, like Christians, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, uh, who all came together and rallied to save the life of my attacker. A few local peace activists and human rights advocates like my mentor and good friend Hadi Jawad, a Pakistani-American, and my dear friend, Dr. Rick Halperin. He's a human rights professor, a history professor at the uh, university called Southern, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. 
they all came forward and we built a team to fight to save a human life. And um, I received tremendous support and positive energy from all over the world, not just from Dallas, Texas, or from the US, um, because I built a website uh, quickly and put an online petition to save his life. And I was overwhelmed seeing the amount of love and, and support from people um, from Australia to Norway, to Singapore, to India, Pakistan, and Brazil. And I felt that was the right thing to do. So coming together to save a human life is the best thing to do. And I was inspired by the verse in the Holy Quran, chapter 5 and verse 32, uh, where it says that saving a human life is like saving the entire mankind. And taking a human life is like taking the entire mankind. And my attacker, Mark Striven, was in disbelief that he never apologized. He never reached out to his victims. He never even said sorry to anyone. But then here, one of his victims came forward to fight to save his life. When I met his uh, attorney, she told me that a 42 years old, grown up, big man, reduced into tears. That's not something you see often. That he couldn't believe that. Still, he received mercy and forgiveness from his victims. What was the end result? The end result, with the help of uh, people from all walks of lives and um, Amnesty International, another uh, organization called Reprieve from London, we took our campaign to the European Union and German parliaments and at the headquarters of Lundbeck, the little injection manufacturer in Denmark. And we urged Lundbeck to stop supplying the, the drug uh, to the US prison and also urged the governor of Texas not to use their product to kill human beings. And um, Lundbeck uh, kept our request. And not only that, Lundbeck also announced that it would stop supplying the drug to the US prisons carrying out executions. And we also took our case to the uh, US Supreme Court asking for clemency. But despite all our efforts, Mark was executed on July 20th, 2011. But before that, I filed petition. I requested the Texas Department of Criminal Justice system to allow me to have a mediation dialogue with my attacker. And that request was denied time and again. And that's the beauty of our country that it, no matter who you are, you have certain rights under the constitution. You have certain rights as a human, as a citizen of this country, so since my request was denied, I filed lawsuit. I seek legal help that my attacker should not be executed before this dialogue takes place under the Texas uh, victim's right. I have the right to have a conversation with my attacker. So based on that, I petitioned and I was again amazed by the support and seeing the human capacity to come together for doing things right. Uh, my attorney, Kuram Wahid from Florida, who is one of the renowned human rights lawyer in the US, and uh, Dana Lynn Racer from Houston, uh, these two attorneys that came together, came forward to work with us. And, and lots of people came forward from, from different backgrounds to help me with this legal fight. And um, so we filed, we give our best effort 
to delay the execution, to having to have the chance to meet him. But at the end, I was not able to see him in person, but I was able to at least talk to him the day he was supposed to be executed. And Mark put me put my name on the list of people that he wanted to talk. And well, while I was getting ready to go to the court to give a last fight to stop the execution with my lawyers and the, and the entire legal team, I called the prison system and was told he was busy. I called again and I was told he was busy. And you know, by now that I did not learn how to give up on good things. So I called again and I was told he was busy. He cannot talk to me. Then I realized something is wrong. So long story short, I called one of his friends outside who was managing all his business on the last day. And I was lucky that Mark was talking to that friend over a land phone. And I said, I was told that Mark is on the line. And if I want, he would be able to put me on a speakerphone on a three-way line. I said, let's do that. So when he put us together, and, and it was very emotional because, I mean, what, what you can tell to a person who is about to die in, in like within a couple of hours, who is, who is about to be executed. And he is a healthy person, not having any kind of physical issues or any kind of health problem or anything. And it was very emotional, very sens sensational uh, moments. And when I didn't know what to tell him at that moment, because I was not ready to talk to him in that way, I was hoping that that the Texas government would allow me to talk to my attacker to find some closure, to end this nightmare and move forward and heal. So when Mark came on the phone on the, from the, on the other side, I told him, Mark, you should know for sure that I never hated you and I forgave you. And then he said, Rays, I never expected this from you. And then he said, I love you, bro. And, and hearing that from him, I just couldn't hold my tears on. I felt very emotional that this is the same human being nine years ago for no reason other than his heart was filled with hate, ignorance, and fear of the other. He pulled the trigger on my face, did not see me as a human being, did not see me as a life worthy of. He treated me as a lesser person. Nine years later, it's the same human being when his heart is filled with love, compassion, mercy, understanding, and acceptance. He was able to see me as a human being and as his brother. And then I said, Mark, I'm praying to God, and we're going to fight to save your life. Something like that. I don't remember exactly the words. And then he said, I never expected this from you. And then Mark told me, they're calling me. I have to go. And he left. So that was his transformation in the death row, that he hated me when he didn't know me, but in the end called me brother and said he loved me. He hated me because of my because of the color of my skin, my perceived faith. And at the end, it is the it is because of my action, inspired my by my faith and upbringing, helped him to see me as human, as as his brother. So it's, it's a remarkable story, and I really thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to know a little bit about a world without hate, and and your work with the nonprofit, and why you decided to 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 found that. 
I founded World Without Hate uh, during my global campaign to try to save the life of my attacker from death from Texas death row. And I received tremendous amount of positive support and energy from all over the world, which inspired me to continue my journey to inspire and encourage people to be more compassionate, empathetic, understanding, accepting, and, and forgiving. And World Without Hate works to prevent and, and disrupt hate and violence. And we do this by focusing on empathy, and storytelling. Some of our current priorities are the launch of National Healing and Reconciliation Initiative, helping to pass a 9-11 hate crime resolution in Congress. And um, with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaching and continued hate and violence on the rise, we believe sharing stories like mine to help build more awareness around hate and violence inspire people to treat one another as humans first. And I give the credit to Allah that he kept me alive. He gave me a second chance and I'm trying my best to keep my promise, helping people, no matter who you are, Muslim, Christian, Jews, Hindus, atheists, we all have the right to live a peaceful a dignified human life. And I'm trying to do my best to promote that message through my work, through World Without Hate. Bryce, thank you so much for joining America Muslim Project. This has been a, a, a great conversation, and I appreciate you sharing your story with our audience. It's, a, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for sharing my story through your podcast. And um, you know, I look forward to uh, continue this conversation if time and situation permits in the future, because we need everyone. It's not my work versus your work. We all have to combine our efforts to create a world that we all deserve, a world without violence, a world without victims, and a world without hate. My conversation with Rice Bouyan was recorded in June of 2021. I encourage you to visit his nonprofit, World Without Hate. His website is worldwithouthate.org. We'll have links to that and everything else that we talked about in the show notes. American Muslim Project is a production of Revelion Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Marconato, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. Hit us up online at AmericanMuslimProject.com.